I'm delighted to be with you. It's been a long, long time. From, like Bertie said, from the last visit that I had to the little church, and to see it now, it's just quite amazing. Since then, I've been traveling. Oh, my life has always been traveling. Some people call me a spiritual gypsy. I've worked all across Europe, across Eastern Europe particularly, and the last 17 years we've been based in Greece and Macedonia. Many years ago, as a young believer, I came, well, I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ at 18 years of age. The next morning, I didn't know how to tell my family I'd become a Christian. And there's a girl in this meeting tonight, and without me saying a word to her, she said, did you become a Christian last night? Because there was a difference. And God spoke to my heart a short time later regarding the needs in Eastern Europe, about Christians that were suffering, being imprisoned, tortured, and some of them dying because they loved Jesus. He broke my heart. And I knew that one day God was going to take me there. I didn't know how. And I wanted to go to full-time service. I wanted to go to Bible school, but I didn't know where to go. I was as ignorant of spiritual things as you could get anybody in Northern Ireland to be ignorant of them. I had gone to church and meetings when I was a young boy, but it didn't mean anything. And then one day I was in Belfast working, and I went to the Faith Mission bookshop, and I met a redhead young fellow there, and he was down looking for the boat. I got into conversation with him, found out his name was Gilbert Edgerton. And it turned out, I said, what are you doing tonight? He said, oh, I'm just hanging around. The boat's going out between 10 and 11, and I'll just wait. I said, well, if you like, come with me to my digs. I've got a prayer meeting tonight, and then I'll take you down to the boat on the motorbike. That's exactly what I did. Took him there, and it was after that meeting, I thought, I want to be the kind of man that Gilbert Edgerton is. Didn't work out. But I tried. <laughs> and I went to the faith mission, and I spent four years with them, and I loved every bit of it. I told them right from the very first week I was going to go to Eastern Europe. A lot of people didn't believe me. They thought, I'll stay at home and preach over here. It didn't work that way. God had called me to Eastern Europe, and he brought me there. My wife, Wilma, is from the Highlands of Scotland, and we've got four incredible sons and 13 grandkids. Somebody was telling me he was so much, well, he's 73 and I'm only 69, so if that counts as points in this place. But it, honestly, there's a wee bit of friendly rivalry wherever I go with somebody. I always pick one, and it, I'm just thrilled to be here tonight to be able to share a little bit about what has God has done in our lives and what he wants to do, I believe, in yours. I didn't realize until Friday night that there was a whole list of speakers coming, and I know that you brought me here first, hoping that the other three will be able to get recover all the damage I do. And I don't mind that. I'm glad to be here. Whenever I went to the faith mission, I enjoyed all those four years, incredibly. When I went out to Eastern Europe, we ended up with four incredible sons. Every one of them became Christians in or around the age of five. When we were going across into all of these communist countries, our desire was to meet with people, to share with them, and tell them they were not alone. Many of them had suffered horribly. I have one friend, and he was tortured every single day for five and a half years. Not one day, not one week, not one month— 
five and a half years of being tortured day in and day out, bones broken, stood on ice, heat, cold, anything that could be used to torture him, they used on that man. He had been a firebrand for Jesus, and he had written a book called Why I Believe in God. He wanted to get it published and given out into the land of Bulgaria. Whenever he was arrested, that book still hadn't been printed. End of five and a half years, he came out of his prison. He went to his home. He greeted his wife from Switzerland, and we've been in his home several times. And then he went and he found the manuscript where he left it, and he tore it in pieces. Why I believe in God. And then he started to rewrite why I believe in God. And now he wasn't writing about theories that he'd learned from the Bible and from other older mature Christians. He was writing about five and a half years of hell where Jesus had held his hand every single day. When I went and met that man, I brought literature to him on a number of occasions. One day I brought my eldest son, and I did one of these little interviews with him. And I asked him some questions. He said, well, first of all, let's go to the middle of my meeting, the church meeting because there's sp- little microphones in the walls that the communist authorities want to pick up what we're saying. If you stand in the middle, big wide open spaces reverberate. You folk away down there haven't learned that yet, but it stops the speakers picking up right. So tomorrow or next week, here. And so anyway, I talked with him and I shared with him about how much of a challenge he had been to so many. And Ian gave his testimony. I interviewed the whole thing through. And then I said to him, if you were getting a chance to repeat any part of your life, what would you choose? And he said, I would take the five and a half years where I was being tortured for Jesus. Because Jesus was so close to me every single day. My eldest son, Brian, was never the same after that day. He wanted to make his life count for Jesus. And I tell you, there's nothing like it. I could keep you here. Our meetings used to last an average of three hours. And if they got anything less than that, they were disappointed. They thought they weren't getting value for money. Many times in various countries, we would have meetings in the morning, and then they would stay together for lunch, which would take a couple of hours, where we would have fellowship, getting close to each other, sharing with each other, praying for each other, and then continue with an evening meeting. I brought my father and mother along with me several times, and my father-in-law is a great preacher, and we used to work together like this, and they absolutely loved it. We worked in all of these countries year after year after year, and we found it Yes, it was challenging. We knew the secret police were after us year after year. We knew the KGB were after us, but we knew that God was on the throne. Many different times when we were going up to the border crossing, sometimes I would pray, sometimes Wilma would pray, but then we would take turns on each one of our boys, our four boys after they came to faith. They would pray that God would open the doors for us and bring us through. And every single time God brought us through, Many, many times where it seemed impossible. In one border crossing, there were two other missionaries or two other groups of missionaries from Austria and from Germany. They had both been captured. We heard about it through the grapevine and we were praying for them, but we were heading through the same border. And as we prayed about it, we wondered what we should do. We had a huge camping bus. We had it filled with literature. And as we were praying about it, the strangest thing happened. 
it felt as if God was saying, go right through the same border. I mean, there's always a choice of different ones, especially when something like that happened. When we got to that border crossing, our youngest son, who just left us this morning at four o'clock, we left, we brought him down to the airport in Dublin, and he's away back to the States to continue his work with World Help. He committed his life to the Lord Jesus Christ in a place called Novi Sad, just outside Biograd. And so whenever we came down near the border, the other boy said, right, if you've become a Christian, it's your turn to pray. <laughs> There's a dictatorship going on in our family. Anyway, that wee boy prayed. And whenever we came to that border where those other two vehicles had been confiscated during the same week, this huge guy came out. He was absolutely colossal. When he stepped into the van, the whole thing tipped over at one side. And the first two doors that he opened up were this great big double cupboard filled with food that we were bringing for believers in Bulgaria. Well, it turned out that this big guy had an appetite. And when he saw all that food, he wanted to know how it all tied together, what went with what, how do you cook this and all this. My wife had a blast with him. And then half an hour later, he, oh, he said, I'm supposed to be searching this van. He said, that's all right, on you go. He never even looked at the van. We had the vehicle coming down with scriptures of every shape, form, and other. It was simply unbelievable. And then we went through, and the boys turned around, and they said, Alan, you're definitely saved. <laughs> and so little things like that, our lives are not the same as a lot of other people here. I didn't grow up like many of you going to church and all the rest of this thing. It was out in the forefront of seeing people who had really suffered and trying to encourage them that they were not alone. Like I said, I could keep you here hour after hour telling you story after story of what God did for us when we went. And it was exciting. There were the risks. We knew that if I got caught, then I was going to, we called it holiday camp, that the kids wouldn't panic. They didn't know all that we were doing, but they knew that we were bringing presents to God's people. There were bad people who had Satan on their side who would try and stop us. But God was on our side. Kids don't need any more than that. We're on the winning side, and they would pray and ask God to bring Daddy in and bring him back out again, and God did that. You know, there's a reason why God tells adults to become like little children. It's so that we will believe him simply. Some of us have got so much theology up here, we start thinking, oh, God maybe has got another reason for this happening and all the rest of it. And then we don't, we don't trust him. We don't believe he can do what he can do best. And our kids never had a doubt about that. They knew what God could do. And so we worked right through. In all of these countries, we watched the Iron Curtain collapsing and we kept on traveling. And then we had a lot of fun when some of these places, they had gangs of thugs who thought, ah, these Westerners are easy meat. Let's just take what we want from them. Well, I married a Scot, and nobody takes what they want from me, because I have to answer to her afterwards. <laughs> so there's a few times whenever we were having our little discussion, and somebody was making signs that they were going to break my window, burst my tires, come into my van, I would lift a baseball bat, and I said, you just try it. And my sons would come up to protect their daddy. We are a very... Um, I couldn't really call myself a gentle missionary, but I do believe in laying on of hands when it's necessary. <laughs> and every time it looked like there was going to be serious, serious trouble like that, God would just step in and the other side would walk off. We watched it again and again and again, and I have no doubt it is because of the hundreds of people back home who are praying for us day in and day out. 
we had many friends that were praying for us many times a day. We watched then as the war broke out in Yugoslavia, and because that had been part of the field that we worked in, we knew the roads, we knew the valleys, where many of the big trucks going down through on the motorways. Oh, is there anybody here who could get me a little sip of water, just in case I run out of petrol or whatever? This war started there, and we were asked, could we please bring in help down to the front lines? We said we would definitely do so, but along with each of the loads of clothing, medicines, and all the rest that we were bringing down, we brought in God's Word. We found open hearts. We found people desperate to hear what God had to say regarding their situation. We know what it was like to go through 35 years of murder and mayhem here in the north of Ireland. I lost many, many friends. They were desperate days. They were nothing compared to what we experienced down in Yugoslavia in those years. And from the, the corners up in little old Slovenia, a little Roman Catholic country just bordering Austria, right through to Croatia, another really blinded Roman Catholic country leading on down into Serbia to see the things that were happening there, whole villages, towns, and all the rest getting wiped out simply because they are of a different religion. We've been in villages and towns where even the animals, all the livestock were slaughtered because they were owned by someone of a different religion. That's taken contamination a wee bit too far. And, excuse me, we continued traveling down there. We started visiting some of the camps where the refugees fleeing from different villages and towns that were being attacked, they were escaping for their lives. And we have story after story of how some of these people, meeting us at the first time, a little bit wondering who these people were, but afterwards receiving us joyfully, welcoming us, throwing their arms around us, and taking God's Word over and over again. The first time we met one man who was a bodyguard, he was this huge man. He still had a bullet in his shoulder from protecting the, the mayor who was from his town. The next time we came, he was the one walking out with a box of tracks, giving them out. He didn't say, would you like one? You're taking one. End off. And in the midst of everything, in the midst of all the heartbreak, we met situations where you could not even get word for it. One lady that we got to know, she had been in a, in a little home, her own home, with her husband, her brother-in-law, and sister. The Serbian terrorists came in, and then they started raking around the house. They started looking what they could get. And then one of them came in with a chainsaw, and she started thinking, oh, he's going to start cutting all my furniture to pieces. He cut every one of them to pieces, except that lady. And then he told her, now you go out and you tell everybody else what's coming your way. And that woman eventually found herself into a refugee camp that we were going to. And when she got to that camp, she found people that loved Jesus. And she was broken and it went on, her suffering went on for a long time. But then she realized these people love Jesus and they love me. And that lady found Jesus in that camp. There is no limit to the nightmare that people are going through in our world today. And it's still going on. We've just come from a conference in Rome, and we were with 900 missionaries. And they were telling us stories of what is going on in their areas. You would not believe what people have to go through today. 
because they're willing to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a nightmare. It is a total and utter nightmare. And yet Jesus is building his church. And it seems in the places where it's hardest to be a Christian, that's the places where they are glowing brighter because they know when they decided to follow Jesus, there was going to be a cost. Over here we're taught, oh, if you become a Christian, it's the best thing that will ever happen to you. It'll never get too difficult and life's going to be a bed of roses. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible tells you that Jesus will never leave you. The Bible also tells you that you will be hated of all men because they hated Jesus also. Many of us aren't prepared for that. We like it until it gets tough. And then when things start getting hard, we want to bail, we want to get out, and we want to take the easy path. I know so many Christians that don't want to offend people. They don't want to tell the truth. I have been asked not to go back to churches because I am a little bit less tactful than some others. My wife's trying to make me more tactful, and I'm wishing her all the very, very best. We've been 43 years married, and I'm hoping that she works out on it, but I'm not terribly hopeful. Folks, life is hard. The answer to the world's problems is Jesus. Make no mistake about it. There's all sorts of other fancy religions. There's all sorts of fancy philosophies going on out there. There's none of them work except the born-again experience of Jesus Christ, where he changes you and makes you different. And the rottenness inside, all those years of sinfulness, rebellion, and turning from him, where it gets cleansed. And then when the Holy Spirit comes inside, makes you a new person, and then taking control, makes you a person that Jesus can use. That's what he wants. He's not looking to fill your head full of theology, although if he can, it'll be brilliant, and God can use you somewhere as a preacher. But what he wants is vessels that he can use, channels that he can flow through, reaching people and telling them, look, who you need is Jesus. All the years that we worked through the war fronts, then actually it got so hard, we had to take a break, and we went from Bosnia-Herzegovina across to the States for two years of studies. We then went down to the land of Greece, where I had gone down eight different times during all our years of working in Austria. They asked me, will you come down here and share on beach missions, because I've done years and years of experience with this kind of thing. We went down there and got to know a lot of lovely Greek Christians. They were bringing Yugoslavs down to Greece, and they wanted people to talk to them, preach at them, reach them for Jesus, and then send them back up to become the leaders of the church. And that is what has happened down through the years. But after we finished in America, doing two years of study, God called us down to Greece. And here we found that many of the friends we had befriended over those eight different visits, over 22 different years, they became a nucleus that we started to work amongst. We started to live in Greece, and we started to travel up into what we call then Fyrom, former Yugoslavian Republic of Macedonia. Now they call it Northern Macedonia because of the political hatred that goes between the two countries. The new name hasn't made a bit of difference. The Greeks still hate the new name of Northern Macedonia, and the Northern Macedonians aren't very happy with it either. But that's politics for you. Look what it's done in Northern Ireland. And so our job is to stay there, encourage the little church, and reach into Yugoslavia, which is part is where the Macedonian peace comes in, and try and reach and help there too. Jesus is building his church. I'm not. My work is to make disciples. 
I work with a young a group that are called um, disciples. There's another really nice name with it. Can't remember. It'll come back to me. But they make where they have disciples making disciples. When they make disciples, that person is not called a disciple until they have led someone to Jesus. Then they're a disciple. And they are seeing thousands of churches grounded year by year. And I long to see young people that I've been working with for years in Greece going out and doing the same thing, winning others to the Lord. We had a measure of success in different directions. God blessed us. We built a youth center or we built a mission center, and then God gave me ground to build a youth camp. And then suddenly we started noticing people coming through our nation, little brown people, and we started discovering they were refugees from Syria, from Iraq, and so on. The dozens became hundreds. We started reaching them on the borders between Greece and Macedonia, giving them food, giving them clothing, giving them the Word of God. And then we were approached by a number of people from the evangelical community and said, um, you're not allowed to do that. I said, who said? Uh, we have made a decision, evangelical Christians, that we're going to help them. We'll give out food, we'll give out clothes, but we're not going to cause offense. We're not going to give out Bible. We will smile at them. I said, you can do whatever you like, but you don't have authority over me. God has called me here, and our job is to reach these people from, for Jesus. We don't see any point in making people well and then sending them to hell. And so we were told, okay, if you're going to keep on doing this, will you please move down about 100 meters? Because when you get into trouble, and you will, we don't want to be dragged down with you. So we move down from them. When Christians are getting like that, the best thing you do is leave them and just carry on with what has to be done. You're not supposed to be doing it here tonight, though. I'm dropping a wee hint in case you haven't caught on. We went on down there, and what happened? God started blessing. People started coming to us and saying, can you show me how to become a Christian? I mean, this is what Christians, missionaries dream about happening. It was happening us. Men that had been fighting as soldiers, men just traveling through, other individuals just coming and saying, can you show me how to become a Christian? And day after day, we were leading individuals, and sometimes up to as many as four people, leading them to the Lord Jesus Christ. But I can tell you, in every single one of these incidents, in the camps, we had to say to them, are you prepared to give your life? Because that's what it could cost. There were fanatics in the camp, and some of them hated Christians. It was clear to be seen. I've been threatened time and time again. So many times have told me that I'm a heretic when I say that God is my Father and that Jesus is my Savior, and He was the Son of God. I talked to them and I said, why do you not believe it? And they said, oh, we do believe that Jesus died. And then some say, oh, no, He wasn't on the cross. Somebody else died for Him because God wouldn't let His prophet be murdered like that. I said, what happened, Muhammad? He was murdered. It just took him a year to die. But we found right from the very start where we were told not to be offensive, not to be forward, just to try helping. I found by going in and when they said to you, why are you doing this? I said, we're Christians. We love the Lord Jesus Christ and he's told us to help people. That's what we're doing. It lets them know right from the start, I serve a different God. And we had an incredible time simply telling them about Jesus. Not only Muslims coming through, but sometimes people who said they were Christians. Sometimes you would meet them and say, oh, we're Christians. 
And I said, well, let's just sit down here. I would give them New Testaments. I would talk to them. They would gather in a circle, maybe nine, twelve people, or maybe another twelve standing behind, listening to everything I would say, all being translated to them. And then I said, can you tell me when you were born again? Because you can't be a Christian if you're not born again. They had never heard the message. And they sat all around me, tears streaming down their face, as I told them the story of Jesus. And so one young girl was standing there, or sitting there, and she read right through the entire time that I was talking. And then afterwards, when they came up, they hugged me. Two of the ladies, Kurdish ladies, they put their arms around me and kissed me on the cheek and said, thank you. And then they were taken through on their way to Germany. I could tell you story after story of how some of these individuals just coming to me and said, can you tell me how to become a Christian? I said to them, why do you want to become a Christian? And one young man coming through, he was the first man that I ever talked to in the camp so directly about Jesus. He said, whenever I was rescued from the boat, a lady called Hannah talked to me about Jesus. She was somebody who knew what it was about. It wasn't about getting wet clothes changed. It wasn't about giving them food. It was getting them to know the Son of God. She met them four times throughout that first day. And such was the impact of that young woman on his life. And when I asked him, why did he want to become a Christian? He said, I want what Hannah had. I'm the missionary. But I was able to lead that man to Jesus because of another young lady who was willing to be faithful and told that man he needed Jesus Christ. And over and over again, the stories went, talking to people. I was in like one other day in the camp, and this lady, I was talking to a number of people. I looked around, and this lady looked, she just saw me, and she bolted. And I thought, what on earth's going wrong? I asked what happened, and they said, oh, the police came yesterday and arrested her husband. We don't know when or if we'll ever see her again. And I said, so why did she run from me? And they said, they, they probably she thinks you're with the authorities. So I waited around. I saw her coming back in to check on her two little kids. And I came over beside her and said, look, you don't need to worry. I'm a Christian. And she just started to cry. And she said, oh, thank God. She said, I've been asking God all day to send someone to talk to me. As I talked with her, she told me about her husband. And she asked me, will you pray for my husband? This girl's not even a Christian. But I prayed for her. I prayed for her family. I prayed for the two children. I prayed for her. And the next day, back in the camp, I went in and I saw her. I called her by name and I looked over. And she started to greet me. And then she said, she looked over my shoulder and pointed me to look. And I looked and there were the police walking in with a man between them. It was her husband. And God had answered prayer. God had released her husband. He came over to me. He talked for a couple of moments with his wife. And then he came over and he said, thank you. He said, I have put my trust in Jesus Christ. He said, but pray on for my wife. She's not yet a believer. That girl found out in that camp that God still answers prayer. And that's the way the situation has gone right through over these past years. I've only got 15 minutes left before you lot all have to run home. But in all of these things, times have changed. Now the great big camps have broken down. In, people are in either homes or smaller camps. We are living in a place called Beria. Some of you know it from Acts 17. Two years ago, the Greek government came around and said, we want you to sign a pledge, sign a piece of paper saying, you will not preach inside any of these camps. You will not give out any more literature inside these camps. All over, all the other refugee camps, all over Greece, 
Ministers, missionaries, teams were all signing it because they had other places, they had other buildings they could take them to and simply if people had questions about religion, questions about Christianity, then they could talk about it. Beria is 45 minutes from my home. But I don't like anybody telling me I can't preach or speak about Jesus wherever I am. And I refused, and my team, everyone said, we're not signing. And that went on for two months. And then our friend Nikos, whenever he went in, he was told to get out. And he said, why? He said, you wouldn't sign the form. And he was absolutely gutted. That's literally what happened. I've been preaching all these years that God has set before me an open door and he had brought me in out of Eastern Europe all those years. He had done it in the war fronts of Yugoslavia. He had done it in these camps where other people were being put out for giving out gospel tracts. We were there giving out hundreds and hundreds of New Testaments, pointing people to Jesus, and God kept the door open. And now suddenly, the door was closed. Nikos had only got through his door when the phone rang and said, we've got an emergency, will you come back and help? We need you right now. Thankfully, he didn't say, oh, okay, I'm coming. He said, no, 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 this is not the way it's going to work. He said, we're willing to do this work, but if you're just going to change your mind every so often and tell us to get out, then it can't work. We end up with the only letter we've been told of its kind, a letter signed by the Ministry of Interior in Greece and the police authorities and the military, because of a military camp, and they're all telling us that we can come in when we like, talk to who we like, and give out what we like. And God has kept that door open. He's still on the throne. He's still doing what he does best, working as a sovereign God when he finds people willing to trust him. And it has been difficult. It has been challenging. I've got all of this work going there. We're sending loads of supplies down to the islands, Lesbos, Chios, and all the others. And that's a nightmare scenario. Any of you hear of a little island called Lesbos? You think, oh, that's where refugees are. It's kind of tough down there. The camps are built to hold 3,600 people. There are over 40,000 there. Most of them don't even have tents to cover them. They're plastics. Sheets of plastic keeping them from the rain and the cold and with rats and snakes and rivers running down through them. It's a total nightmare instead of just being a statistic that you can hear about and go home to your house and forget about it's hard. And these people have very little hope of any kind of future unless Christians get in there and reach them for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a door we had never thought that we would ever minister in, and yet it's a doorway that God has opened to us and has blessed us as we've simply gone in. We didn't ever think we'd be working amongst Jews. There are 5,000 Jews visit Veria every single year. I call it V because it's like Gaelic. The B's and the V's are interchangeable. You write it B and you say V. You write V and you say B. And so maybe you don't speak Gaelic in this place. Just another bad joke. Over there, those 5,000 Jews, we reach them. We go to them and we tell them about Jesus. And approximately 500 out of those 5,000 take New Testaments with them back to their homes all across the world reading about the Son of God who came. They're still waiting for their Messiah. And we said, look, we know your Messiah has come. You're just not aware of it yet. And we find by just being open, by being direct, it opens all sorts of conversation and doors. Whole families, different individuals taking a copy each to bring to their home to remember their visit to Greece. 
There are open doors all around us. We're building a youth camp, and it's for 40 people. We want to teach young people to have a daily quiet time, to live for Jesus and rejoice every single day, that they can go out content in who they are, knowing that they have an answer when there's so many desperate for an answer. We want to see people coming not only from Greece, but from Eastern Europe, coming to our camp. It's almost finished. By next year, we hope it will be completely finished, and then we can open its doors to these folk to come. We also have a missionary house built, that missionaries in Eastern Europe that are in burnout can come there, rest for a couple of weeks, and then go home refreshed. It's all taken shape. God gave us the ground by a miracle, and He's provided all the things for it through other miracles, and He's still doing it. We do value prayer. At the back of the hall, on the table at this side, right-hand side going out, I know you're thinking of supper and you're thinking of everything else. I see a couple of other friends just now that I hadn't even realized were here. But see them. That's our last two prayer letters, and there's prayer cards there. Nothing that we are doing would be possible if it wasn't for the fact that people are praying. We desperately need prayer. A lot of our friends have gone home to glory in these last few years. And we need more prayer for all that's happening. The doors are opening all over in many parts of northern Greece, up in Macedonia, and again in many of these different camps, and in the Jewish possibility there in Beria. It seems every time, it seems that there's going to be a difficulty that we're going to get closed down. God just opens it right up again. And that's what he's doing. We have all of these open doors. I've got a message still to preach And if you believe in miracles, you're going to see one in just a few minutes. I want you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, please. Philippians chapter 3. This is one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's just three hours north of where I live in Greece. And when the Apostle Paul was there preaching the gospel, he ended up getting caught, getting imprisoned, getting whipped, getting put in stocks. And when midnight came, do you know what he did? He sat and he praised the Lord with his friend Silas. Close together. (laughs) I want you to turn to one verse. Verse 10. Paul writes, I had a whole reading pulled out, but I talked too long. He said that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death if I by any means might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. This is Paul writing to his beloved friends. This whole gospel is a gospel of joy. Yes, there was suffering at the beginning for him when he was there. But he saw God moving. He saw people coming to Jesus. He saw a demon-possessed girl getting cleansed and getting set free. He saw his jailer after the whipping, coming to Christ with his entire household. He saw another lady coming to Christ. In this place, they saw the power of God. And I know that you have seen it here in this building. But folks, what has happened in the past is not enough for today and for tomorrow. You need to be pushing on each day, taking each advantage, each open door that God gives you, and sharing with others what he has done for you. Going to people asking them, can I pray for you? Is there something you need? Can I help you with something? So many times we think the only possibility we have is if we bring people to our church. That's not 
That's almost a last resort. If your life is what it should be, people will be looking at you and will be, I want what you have. And that's where the rubber hits the road. When Jesus transforms you, he makes you. You don't have to be a preacher. You just need to be willing to tell people about your best friend. What does Paul say? He says, that I may know him. That's a personal experience. We meet so many people who say, oh, I'm a Christian. I was baptized, or I've been confirmed. I'm a Christian. A lady told me that once. She said, I was baptized in the Catholic Church, and the whole time through my report and preaching, it broke my heart. All I could think of, that poor soul is thinking of a drop of water that is going to save her. I went down to talk to her as soon as my message was over. Down to the back. There she was. She turned around to my wife and myself. She said, I'm so glad to have met you, or to have met you. She put her arms around my wife and died in her arms. Folks, there's no guarantee that you're going to live tomorrow morning. That's what life is like. And people that you know, you can't take the bet that somehow they're just going to survive until some other opportunity. Pray for them. Pray for opportunities to share about Jesus with them. Jesus, or this man Paul prayed that he might know him. He didn't want just to hear about Christ. He wanted to know him in a personal way. He had now someone, not just someone who was religious, he had a friend, he had a master, he had someone totally in control, someone who had promised, I will never leave you. And he never did. That's why Paul was able to do the things he did. He believed Jesus and took him at his word. A personal experience, a powerful experience, the power of his resurrection. Can you imagine the power it took that Jesus, the person who came to live, to show us what it was like as a son of God, to heal the sick, to teach, to raise the dead, to do all these things, to command the sea, and it was calm. And then they took him and they tortured him and they nailed him to death. And he rose again. When you become a Christian, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the Bible teaches me, is what raised Jesus. So when you get a little problem, do you have to go and whinge around to every neighbor that you've got and let them be miserable with you? No. You take it to him. You take it to God. You let him take you through. And then in the midst of your suffering, difficulty, problem, whatever you're going through, share with them what Jesus has done for you. That's what victorious Christian living is, where you have proved that Jesus is who he says he is. That's why Christians are not ordinary people. We are not ordinary. We have the life of the Son of God living inside us. And then he says he wants to experience the fellowship of his suffering. That's a painful experience. I've heard ministers preaching that whenever you come to Christ, you'll not have any more problems. That's a lie. And I'll talk, say that to any minister that I hear coming out with nonsense like that. Because it's not true. The Bible teaches us that when you become a Christian, you're going to have problems. I've had people that when they became Christians, they were thrown out of their home. I have a friend who's a Muslim now. He's under sentence of death because his father hates what he has done. Life, for some, becomes a nightmare when they become Christians. But only as far as looking around is concerned. 
it becomes incredible when they think of what they have. Jesus inside, a home in heaven, and the best that this life can offer, because they know they're doing what God wants them to do. And when they've lost so much, they're not so much worried about losing anything else. We hold on like grim death because we're afraid of losing it. Folks, Paul said that for him to live was Christ, but to die was gain. We are so willing to go the easy road that sometimes Jesus can't get us to do anything at all. And then in closing, he said, being made conformable unto his death. We've looked at a personal experience, a powerful experience, a painful experience, and a practical experience. When you're willing to die for what you believe in, it's not so difficult as it seems. You think, who are you to talk to us like that? I can tell you who I am. I was down in Belfast one night, and a man put a gun to my head, and he told me he was going to blow my head off. And I told him, you go right ahead, I'm ready to go. Fifteen minutes later, that man was on his knees on the ground, crying like a baby, because God stepped in. I had a crowd of thugs up in Belfast that were going to kill me one night and they discovered the following, the following night, day that they had actually murdered someone the week before. I had 45 minutes of talking with them about Jesus. Quite incredible because whenever I was talking with them, we walked down right onto the Antrim Road and suddenly they broke away from me and made a line across the road and they stopped a little pickup truck coming down. And I thought, God, I thought you were in control here. And look at this nonsense. And I was just standing there. And these boys, they stopped the vehicle. And then they dragged the driver out. And I heard one of the young men who had come to attack me, come on over here, how to become a Christian. The man staggered out of the vehicle and they brought him over to me. I started talking. He didn't hear one word. I said, take him back to the van, guys. He hasn't a clue what I'm saying. And the guy drove down the Antrim Road like that there. He was a danger to the road. But for me, it was showing that God could look after me. I have an experience after experience of people who thought they could take my life. Nobody can touch me until God says so. It's as simple as that. But you know, the confidence it gives. When we started working in the camps and they told us we couldn't witness and we witnessed. Then they came to us a little bit later when there was crowds of six to seven hundred in each of the big tents. And they said, well, okay, you won't listen to us regarding witnessing, but don't go into those tents. So we ignored them again. And sometimes some of the Muslims said, why, do you, why are you not scared of us? And I said, so there's only 600 of you. <laughs> they have got this ridiculous theory that if you're a Christian, then you go for a weak religion. But if you're a Muslim, you go for something that's strong. And we've got to show them that we've got something that's far better than anything they have ever experienced. Jesus died for each one of you. He died for every Hindu and he died for every Muslim. Because Muhammad can't deliver. We've got the answer. We've got the gospel. And Jesus has told us to go out and win others for him. Folks, if you have not come to Jesus, do it tonight. Young folk, you want something to live for. There's a whole world out there that needs young preachers. They need young people that are willing to stand up and be counted. Those of you that are parents, teach your boys and girls about Jesus. And older ones, live and die for him.
God bless you. Lovely been with you. Don't forget the prayer letters. We'll be glad to send to any of you that would like. Make sure you leave us a name and address, and we'll send it to you. God bless you.